It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lee. Welcome to the Monday morning edition of Daily Thunder. So yesterday, I, at the last minute, decided to throw my Sunday message into a series. It was originally going to be a standalone, but as I was even just finalizing things and driving over here uh, to speak yesterday morning, I, I felt that it was so obviously a part of it, and which is so interesting that I could prepare three messages for this week and prepare a separate message for Sunday and realize that they totally blend together. Yesterday's message was called The Winding Road, and it deal, dealt with the idea of dependence, which is sort of the response uh, to the Messiah, and which is the bride to the groom response, and so there were two key elements, which is follow me, and the other one, which was to wait, and it's a, it's a symbol of dependence, but a symbol of the bride, and so this series called The Beautiful Bride is... I think going to be really precious for us as we go through this week. It's delicate, dangerous territory. Let me just put it that way. It's, it's, it's one thing just for any of us in here to cover it, let alone a man, let alone a strong man uh, that is going to start to articulate uh, the idea of femininity from a godly perspective. It's difficult, okay? It's, it's, a, it's a unique challenge, but I since I'm such a fan of femininity, it's like I feel like I'm safe in doing it. If I was, had some agenda to put women under uh, my thumb, well then uh, you'd question my motives and maybe you should get up now and leave. However, I think you will all be safe uh, as we venture into this. But uh, this particular one is called Silent. And you could only imagine, I, I don't know how many of you lean in the uh, feminist uh, direction, but uh, I am a big fan of femininity. I'm not a fan of feminism. I know where it comes from. I understand it completely. And in fact, I, I really get the idea of when men abuse their role, uh, then I understand why there is a retaliation. It's, it's actually just natural. It's sort of like, uh, the cat being attacked by the dog, and it's only natural that the cat would go, <laughs> uh, and it doesn't mean I like it when cats do that, and however, I understand why. If the dog's gonna you know, do that and treat the cat that way, then it makes total sense. So this idea, even the word silent, and uh, here I am talking about the bride or the woman, uh, you can understand why uh, there, there might be a little political incorrectness floating in the air. I am not even trying to give commentary at first on this. I just am laying out a concept, which here's what's interesting. This is not really just a feminine thing. So all the women in here are going to get this message about silent. This is a bride of Christ thing. So every single one of us in this room is going to get a message about silent. And there is a, a place for this silence in each of our lives because each of us represents what we could call the bride of Christ. So, uh, the beauty of the bride series. Did I call it, did I say the beautiful bride earlier? Uh, or the beauty of the bride? I don't know, but that's, that's the name, the beauty of the bride. Uh, and so, I'm going to cover three things this week, and I'm giving you a sort of a map for where we're going with it as I'm Monday, and then Wednesday, and then our, my Friday Daily Thunder session. So, the first one is silent, and you'll notice that it's, the second one's pierced and then poured out is the third one. But silent before the word, pierced by the master, poured out for the king. Right there is the essence of what we are asked to become. Then, and he is the head, then we will submit to him, and we will learn to be silent before his word, instead of talking over it. We will learn to... Uh, be pierced, and what does that mean? That sounds like what he was, but it's the pierced ear, as we will go through, and then poured out, which, of course, all of these are very vivid pictures in the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, 
I am uh, waiting for my keynote to come up on the screen uh, so we know the next slide. I, I heard the sound of a uh, computer starting over in the back. Uh, so uh, you guys are enjoying this right along with me that are live. Anyone who is uh, hearing this via podcast, who knows if uh, Hudson will cut this out when he's editing it. But uh <coughs> so uh, silent. Uh, is the name of this one, which is a per perfect. Uh, I have, uh, I'm trying to, I could just be silent and give a demonstration of what that looks like, uh, which would be profound. So uh, what's our time frame for getting this up? <coughs> All right. So we have a moment uh, while we wait for the keynote. Okay. All right. That's good. So uh, my next slide, according to uh, Nathan, this is a very unique way to do a keynote presentation, is there are always two. Have you guys ever heard me say that? There are always two. Uh, so it's interesting because most of us, when we, we think about my statement about there are always two, and I go through the Bible and I go Cain, Abel, I go uh, Ishmael, Isaac, you know, Esau, Jacob, you know, there's this whole process I go through Old Testament, New Testament, we see these twos everywhere. And I mean, even in the things like flesh, spirit, uh, law, grace, uh, I mean, it's, it's profound how there are twos. And then even things like uh, virgins with oil in their lamp, virgins without oil, tares, wheat, uh, goats, sheep. And so this picture is always there. But when it comes to sexuality, it's, it shouldn't be profound, but it is. There are two. I know, in, in today I'm already starting out with some political incorrectness there to say there's only two genders. But I mean, anyone who has a brain would know that, okay? And I'm not even trying to put anyone down. I'm just saying, this is the obvious. You can live in la-la land and say that there are 54 genders, which is what uh, Facebook says. However, there are two, male and female. And they each are supremely important in the revelation of the invisible realm. So last week, uh, when we went through a special series called The Five Fingers, and that's what we talked about. We talked about the fact that the Word of God is the revelation in the natural realm of that which is invisible. So the text is actually a revelation of invisibility. We are seeing something, understanding something that we could not understand any other way. So, so is this role of the uh, male-female sexuality. I mean, this is actually profound, and so that's why we're, we're going through this. So the vow of the woman, I'm going to just read this out of Numbers 30. If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord and bind herself by a bond, being in her father's house in her youth, and her father hear her vow, and her bond wherewith she hath bound her soul, and her father shall hold his peace at her, then all her vows shall stand, and every bond wherewith she has bound her soul shall stand. So it's a strange statement, I have to admit, but there's this concept of if a woman is to vow, and her father hears her vow, he can nullify her vow. Okay, He actually has an authoritative position to, in a sense, free her from her vow. Otherwise, she is bound. If he is silent, she is bound by her vow. So did I, did I finish this whole thing? Okay, but if her father, okay, but if her father disallow her in the day that he hears, not any of her vows or of her bonds wherewith she has bounded her soul shall stand. And the Lord shall forgive her because her father disallowed her. And if she had at all a husband when she vowed or uttered aught out of her lips wherewith she bound her soul and her husband heard it and held his peace at her in the day that he heard it, then her vows shall stand and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. So it's an interesting piece of the law here that we have this idea of a woman that when she speaks, there is something in her life that actually can preserve her and protect her from an inappropriate vow or a vow that would harm her. That if the father who loves her actually intervenes and annuls her vow, she is forgiven from her vow and she is not bound by it. But if he's passive, if he is silent, she's bound by her vow. I mean, it's just such an obscure statement. It's like, why are we reading this in Numbers uh, 30? However, what you see is it says also if this woman has a husband, the same is true. So there's something about the man 
and the woman in regards to a vow, something that is created or spoken or uh, avowed that the man has the ability, has the position legally to annul it. So I know at first it's sort of like, why is Eric bringing this up? I'm going to call this the silent husband who is Adam. He is the passive priest. So he's in a position to rescue his wife, and yet he is silent. I've oftentimes given the illustration that in the Garden of Eden, Adam could have done something different than just eat the fruit. Instead, he eats the fruit and is totally silent when Eve is the carrier of a message to him. And instead of contradicting her message, he actually takes in her message and agrees with it and fails. And so what we have in the very beginning is the silent husband, which is an interesting statement. We have the talking woman and the silent husband. Okay, now you're going to see that the Christianity is going to flip that completely on its head. But Adam is a passive priest. What should Adam have done? We know that Jesus is called the last Adam. So that's a giveaway right there. What should Adam, the first Adam, have done? Well, he probably should have done what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Well, he annulled her vow. So what we see is the talking husband, Jesus, is going to step in and actually cancel and nullify what his bride is doing. So we actually see an activation. What does he do? He lays down his own life. So whereas Adam, there's a need for a shedding of blood in this situation, and so, but Adam and Eve both fail, so God takes a, some kind of animal and clothes them in it. We know that there was some death because they're clothed in animal skin that God made for them, right? So there's some type of sacrifice on behalf of them, but Adam is the one that is, probably should have in this situation said, God, take me instead of my wife. And as a result, the first Adam should have demonstrated what the second Adam did, but the first Adam failed. So the talking woman plus the silent husband equals the great fall. Now I'm going to talk about the speaking husband, which is a strange term. I know we don't usually think of uh, describing Jesus as the speaking husband, but Jesus, he's the rescuing priest. So what we see is Adam is a passive priest, and as a result, there's a failure. And then we see a talking husband, one that comes in and engages with the situation. He's not passive, he's active. So he's, I'm calling him the rescuing priest. So Ephesians 5, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. What an interesting statement uh, to be linking uh, femininity and masculinity together and then call the husband the head and then liken it to Jesus and then to refer to it as the savior of the body. In other words, there's some role that this man plays. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Now, I'm skipping forward to verse 32 here. This is a great mystery. And, you know, for many of us, we're like, what's so great of a mystery about it? You're just telling us, Paul, that it's a man, a woman, you know, and a woman's supposed to submit. And almost, I mean, I tell you, almost straight across the board, Christian marriages blow this, okay? Because the man interprets this in some funny grid, and he has wielded this wrongly, which is, of course, led to feminism, too. In other words, the misuse of these very scriptures are the result of a non-working, non-functional Christian uh, system. This is a great mystery. Yeah, yeah, Paul, you're talking about a, a man and his wife, I know. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You see, this thing known as the two genders, known as a man and a woman, known as a husband and a wife, is actually meant, it was created as a pictorial to show something that is invisible. To, show, to help us understand something that we could not otherwise understand. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and in the wife see that she reverence her husband. So in other words, just know that the primary purpose of this is to showcase Christ and his church. The primary purpose, that's going to be very, very important as we progress. The secondary purpose is now you walk in that to fulfill that. There is a reason why we have our roles. There's a reason why we were made man and woman, and it's to reveal the kingdom of heaven. So the silent woman 
plus the speaking husband equals the great redemption. So what we have is we have a flip of the system to go from the great fall to the great redemption, which includes two key things, the silent woman and the speaking husband. I know, even just saying the silent woman, boy, I tell you what, doesn't that just feel like we are transgressing some kind of territory here culturally that we're not supposed to talk about? And meanwhile, just wait until you see how profound the truth is that we're going to unpack. But it's sort of like there's these danger signs all around, like, don't go here, don't talk about this. Meanwhile, we miss the profound revelation of the kingdom of heaven. So the bride, or the woman, I'm going to refer to her as the great treasure, worthy of the life of Jehovah. It's, it should... I, I almost should be able to say enough said. The fact that God Almighty has given up his very life, that he sends forth his son and his son sacrifices himself in order to procure, to purchase this bride shows the immense value. This is not a low value. So when anyone is derogatory towards the woman uh, position, they fail to realize the high level of value that God himself puts on it. So if he's gonna liken us to the bride, and we say, how valuable is the bride? Well, <laughs> the shed blood of Jesus is what was used to purchase it. So we're actually amplifying its value. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. So what we see is the Bible is very clearly articulating an extreme value for the virtuous woman, for the bride. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Let's catch a vision together for the beauty of femininity. First, the awkward stuff. You guys ready for the awkward stuff? It's, it's in the Bible. Uh, it, it is. I'm going to just take out a whole truckload of it and dump it here in the room. First of all, I'm just going to read Titus 2. Okay, Titus 2 will get you warmed up. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becomes holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So we see Paul in this pastoral letter to Titus, actually delineating and giving this distinction of roles. In other words, there are different roles. It's not just men and women, but it's young men and older, young men and older men, young women and older women. It's like the distinctions of seasons even of how we reveal the kingdom of heaven. It's very, very significant. So now here's a collection of some of your favorite verses. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. That's 1 Timothy 5.14. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. That's 1 Corinthians 14.34. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. That's Ephesians 5, 23 through 24. Do you guys feel the latent tension that can uh, creep into a room as we read these? I'm just reading scripture. What, what's the problem, guys? <laughs> wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Colossians three eighteen. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. And likewise, this is 1 Peter 3, 1, our final one. Likewise, your wives, you wives, be in subject, subjection to your own husbands. So I'm going to bring out a concept here, silent that the groom may speak. Now, when I say that, it's, I, I get it, okay, I, I have the same difficulty with the same scriptures, and I'm a man, okay? 
it's, we have a heavy dose of political correctness that is swept through our culture, which makes it very difficult for us to speak bluntly and boldly about what the scriptures say. However, I understand where the twist in this has come in. And it has actually not been a healthy additive. And that is an incorrect understanding of manhood and an incorrect understanding of headship has led to an abuse and a twisting of what this means, which has caused a recoiling and a retraction of this on the feminine side. It's like, well, uh, I don't know that I can do my part unless the man understands that he's supposed to be as Christ. And if he's not as Christ, I'm in big trouble. Yep, and I would agree. And as a man, I want to protect women from the abuse of men in such circumstances, where a lot of abuse is in the church because men who know like one scripture in their entire life, the one scripture they happen to know is that the woman needs to submit to the husband. That's like the one thing they seem to have held on to in their entire life. That's not good, and that doesn't lead to good. So it's interesting because the practicum students are going through a series this week on shepherding, and so you're going to see the inverse of this. You're going to see the healthy version of leadership, which leads to the healthy version of submission. If leadership is healthy, submission actually is appropriate and right and good. If leadership is unhealthy, we have problems. And it leads to all the great breakdowns of, uh, well, you could say marriage, family, the church, and society. So silent that the groom may speak. Who is the groom? See, a lot of us, when we hear a statement or see a statement like that, immediately presume, oh, great, we got, so what you're saying, Eric, is that I, as the woman, need to be silent so that my husband can do all the speaking. Okay, listen more closely to what I'm saying. Who is the groom? His name is Jesus. You could call it the word of God. And I don't really care what you think. What I care is what Jesus thinks. As the church, do you know that we are supposed to be silent so that the word of God can speak? We could have all our philosophies, we could have all our ideas, but if we aren't actually communicating the word of God, we are out of place. We are out of our proper position and out of our proper role. Okay, you starting to get my point here? In other words, we are the bride, and we must be silent before the groom. So silent that the groom may speak. John 14, 10 is going to reveal something that is so profound. Believe thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. Okay, now I'm gonna shock you for a second here, and I'm gonna say Jesus was silent before the Father. That's precisely what we're seeing here. You see, he still spoke, but he was silent to speak only that which the Father was speaking. So as a result, his tongue was stilled to speak his own words, and his mouth was open to only speak the words of someone else. So what we see is a modeling, and Jesus is gonna come and he's going to model the same. He is going to give us his words, and our mouths are to be stilled so that we only speak his words. Becoming the bride. Now I have another term for the bride, which I think is, to me, it's very beautiful, and that's the governess. Okay, because that gives an indication of something or a role that the woman is going to play, and that is she is going to be, I'm gonna really make you uncomfortable here with this one, but the keeper of the home. Okay, now, I don't, I don't know how well you guys are doing already. This is a tough message, right? But she is called to be the keeper of the home. Did you know that in the Old Testament, there were two? I know, and you're like, okay, great, Eric. I know, there's tons of twos. There were twos to rule over the nation of Israel, or what we call the house of Israel, there are two. There's a king and there's a priest. And one of those two, brace yourselves, was a keeper of the home. Oh my, did I just say that? I did, that's profound. You see, there are twos. And even the Old Testament is showing a home. It is showing a king and a priesthood and how they work together to showcase the glory of God. And one, ironically, is a keeper of the home. So keepers at home. <laughs> Boy, I, I mean, I feel it, guys, even as I'm sharing it. It's like, I'm not supposed to say any of this, and yet it's all so critical to say that they may teach the young women to be keepers at home that the word of God be not blasphemed. 
You see, there is a role that is meant to be performed that showcases the invisible realm. There is something that is being built that is meant to reveal. So the cultivator of order, beauty, truth in the house of God. It's actually the privilege of the Levite. So the Levite has a job description, and that is they are the cultivators of order, beauty, and truth in the house of God. Isn't that an incredible privilege? So Titus 2, this isn't Titus 2. Uh, what is this? This isn't Titus 2. This is from the last days, it, for by the last words of David, the Levites were numbered. I, we're in Chronicles, I think. Uh, so guys, I have no idea why my Titus uh, scripture reference is still on there. But uh, my guess, I don't know if there's someone who could look that up real quick, probably in the New King James, for by the last words of David. But I'll read it in the meantime. For by the last words of David, the Levites were numbered from 20 years old and above, because their office was to wait on the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord. Now, could you imagine if the Levites were all offended, and it was politically correct back then to say, who are you to say that we are keepers of the home? I mean, how... (laughs) Ridiculous is that? We, we should be able to do everything else that everyone else does. However, this is a privilege of privileges. This is a ministry of ministries. This is like the highest position. All the other tribes got the lower rung. There's 11 other tribes that didn't get to enter into the ministry of ministries, which is to tend to the house of God. Isn't that an interesting statement? This is a massive statement of value. This is not a low-budget statement. Our culture has twisted it. You listen to our culture and you'll miss out on the amazing picture of the kingdom of heaven that is being revealed in the New Testament. So did anyone get the uh, scripture where, where this is? First Chronicles 23? First Chronicles 23, 27. Okay. So because their office was to wait on the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord in the courts and in the chambers and the purifying of all holy things and the work of the service of the house of God, both for the showbread and for the fine flour for meat offering and for the unleavened cakes and for that which is baked in the pan. Could you imagine the Levites? It's like, you're telling me I need to deal with that which is baked in the pan? That's, it's a privilege. And for that which is fried, that's important and for all manner of measure and size, and to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord, and likewise at evening, and to offer all burnt sacrifices unto the Lord in the Sabbaths, in the new moons, and on the set feasts by number, according to the order commanded unto them, continually before the Lord, and that they should keep the charge of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the charge of the holy place, and the charge of the sons of Aaron, their brethren, in the service of the house of the Lord. So, there we have in the Old Testament a picture of Titus 2. But it's weird because it's men in the Old Testament. It's a high position. And in the New Testament, we have a picture of this kingdom, of this house, ruled by King Jesus, and then we are given the job of keeping the fire burning in this house. We are given the job of keeping it clean and dealing with the baking of that which is in the pan and the fried foods. Inside of this life, we are preparing a habitat that is fit to give forth the truth of Jesus Christ, the beauty of Jesus Christ to this age and generation. We are the bride. Okay, so I don't know if you're catching that bigger picture here, but to say that the woman in the New Testament is relegated to a low position is a bad way of looking at it. To recognize that she is being leveraged by the Spirit of God to say, I made you this way to reveal something profound. Keepers of the house of God. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. What? What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. We are the house of God, and we all are keepers of the house. So the moment you begin to twist that in a negative way, what are you doing? You're undermining the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You see how important it is that we actually understand the twos. And we understand the fact that there is a spiritual significance that is primary, and that is this is a bridegroom and a bride. And we are learning to be silent before his word. We are learning that he has entrusted us with his Holy Spirit, and he has made us the very house of God. And he says, I want you to keep it now. Here's what I've given you. I've given you the power of the Holy Spirit in order to keep this temple well so that you can reveal the beauty and the glory of God to this generation. This is not a small thing to be the keeper of the home. So in the kingdom of heaven, when the church is being leveraged, which is a picture of Christ and his bride, God is saying, men, I want you to understand what you're going to signify in this. And women, I want you to understand what you're going to signify in this. And I want us to work together to showcase to the heavenly realms the manifold wisdom of God. So when we violate that and we push back against it, we are spurning the revelatory purpose of why we're here. What the Spirit of God is even filling us for. The blessing of being a keeper. Then the house was filled with a cloud. This is in 2 Chronicles 5.14. Even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Simply put, the keepers of the home have a very up-close and personal view of the glory of God. They have grace to do their job. Now, in, I'm going to read the scripture again, and instead of the priests, I'm going to put those that were its keepers, okay? I'm doing that on purpose so that you can understand the feminine role in this. Then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that those that were its keepers, the priests, could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Understanding the proper order. So in God's kingdom, there is order. And when we disagree with the order, we end up losing access to grace. There is grace for order and for when we submit where we're supposed to submit. So in Psalm 50, 23, it says, Whoso offers praise glorifies me, and to him that orders his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. So orders his conversation, that's his lifestyle, the way that he's choosing to live. When you order it right, you will see the salvation of God. In Isaiah 3.12, as for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. O oh, my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. I went through Isaiah 3 with some of you students in here before. That's the first signal of judgment. When the mighty men are removed, you lose the manhood in the culture and children are put in charge. And obviously we see that women are also ruling over them. And we see that it's out of order. It's chaos. It's a form of judgment. In other words, when the men fail, then the women and children lead you're not healthy. That's not a sign of health. And so even though that might sound politically incorrect, it's showing that something is not functioning as God intended it to function. 1 Corinthians 14, 28. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So what we see is twos, once again, and we're seeing it revealed in 1 Corinthians 14, we have tongues and prophecy. A first is, is tongues, Second is prophecy. It's a clear word. So if there isn't a second, then the one who has a first should stay silent. Isn't that interesting? In other words, a first should stay silent if a second is not able to speak on the matter. And so that's how you maintain proper order because what you're going to see is 1 Corinthians 14. This is the same, uh, same flow. That, that, that passage was in 1 Corinthians 14, so are these afterwards. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for, a woman, for women to speak in the church. And then 1 Corinthians 14, 40, in this context, let all things be done decently and in order. There seems to be an order to things. That is how we reveal in our worship and in our church presentation the manifold wisdom of God. Now, I recognize that there's some sticky stuff in there, okay? I, I, it's not lost on me. It's not like I'm totally immune to the sense of cultural correctness that we are in and how wrong some of these things sound. The nature of proper silence. There is a nature of things, okay? Now, I want you just to think this through. Uh, now, Kipling uh, right now is 11 and Reese is 7, okay? If Kipling disciplines Reese, 
an order has been violated that even a toddler can identify and feel. Even when you're a little toddler and someone that is not your parent comes in and disciplines you, it, you feel violated. It's weird, okay? Now, if your parents say, this person is in charge, and if you do this, they will discipline you, that's one thing. But you can tell, you know, you, from an early time in your life, you have a wiring of what is appropriate and who should be over you and who, who shouldn't, okay? And when I was disciplined by a guy named Bob uh, at Thanksgiving dinner years ago when I was around 11 or 12, uh, I was so disturbed by it because who is this Bob guy to be disciplining me. It really happened, and it deeply disturbed me, okay? Probably, maybe as God brings it up right now, I need to work through some things. But it's very fascinating that we have a sense of what is right. Reese does not respond well when Kipling tells him what to do. Can you understand why? Because it's not Kipling's place. Kipling should be silent. Does that mean Kipling can never talk? No, it means Kipling should not have an authoritative voice in that situation. There's a difference. When we basically say, Kip, I need you to be quiet right now. That does not mean, you know, when I say, Kipling needs to be silent. And you get, that sounds so extreme. Yeah, listen to the context. In all matters of discipline in the Ludi home, Kipling does not have a voice. Does that make sense? It does not mean that he's relegated to a lower value system. It just means it's not his position to speak in that realm. He speaks all the time, right? but not in that realm. He has no voice in that. He needs to be silence, silent in that realm. Okay, so the flow of authority is deeply significant in our wiring. However, there is a distinction between Kipling speaking to Reese and Kipling taking a position in Reese's life that is authoritatively domineering. So imagine Kipling comes up to Reese and says, I love you. I think you're a wonderful little brother. I'm not going to say, Kipling, keep silent. What I'm going to say is if he says, Reese, you need to go down and clean your room. I saw that it was messy today. Okay, then I'm going to say, Kipling, that is not your place. It is none of your business. I need you to keep silent on those matters. Does that make sense? Because it's only going to antagonize my family. It is going to bring chaos in my home if I allow him to speak like that. It is not his place to speak like that. You follow me? I'm actually teaching you what the context is here and how the proper order works. There are certain things that it is inappropriate for certain people to speak into. It does not mean they don't speak. It means they do not speak in that context, in that situation. So the word used is leleo. It's a verb. Leleo means simply to speak. But the use of this word is 17-fold. And that's, that's a massive amount of varieties for a, a single word in the Greek, right? 17-fold throughout the New Testament. It can mean anything from to talk, to say, to, to prattle, to be loquacious as a child, to speak in answer to answer, to speak, discourse, discuss in a set manner, harangue, plead, to direct or command, to chatter, babble of birds, to twitter, chirp, strictly to make an inarticulate sound opposed to articulate speech, to a pertinacious, inquisitive, domineering, dogmatical kind of speaking, which in 1 Corinthians would appear to be the idea that Paul is describing as shameful for a woman to do while in the church. Let me read that again. Very likely, what this definition is, is this one. A pertinacious, inquisitive, domineering, it's not her place. And so she is injecting herself, sort of like the inquiring minds want to know type of position, speaking into matters she shouldn't be speaking into, creating a stirring in the church. Okay, She should keep silent. She should not do this. If you want to have a proper order in the church, you need to recognize that that is a dangerous thing. That is flesh actually rising up into a spirit environment. So is a woman never supposed to speak in the church? That's, that's the challenge we all face. Just like, is Kipling never supposed to speak in the home? Kipling speaks all the time in the home and it's perfectly fine. It's just that there's certain aspects of what we would define as the home, the Ludi home that he is not supposed to speak to. So if I were to say, Kipling has no voice or he should be silent in matters of the Ludi home, would you understand what I meant by that? It does not mean he doesn't have a voice. It just means when it comes to the governmental authority structure of our home, he does not have a voice there. And so as a result, it's not that he can't speak inside of this home. It's that he doesn't speak in that realm of the home. 
1 Corinthians 11.5, but every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is even all one, for that is even all one as if were, she were shaven. Boy, that's a hard word, a hard sentence to read. But every woman that prays or prophesies, what's the context? Well, that's a few chapters before a woman's supposed to say silent in the church. Isn't that interesting? In 1 Corinthians 14. So what we see is that it's not that a woman needs to be silent, 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 like Kip can never talk inside the Ludi house. It's that Kip is not supposed to speak in this realm because a woman can pray or prophesy in the church. Isn't that a weird statement? I mean, who would have ever guessed that? It's interesting how the division of the church today is on the same lines of 1 Corinthians. We have people that hang out in 1 Corinthians 11, and they talk only about head coverings, okay? And that's a big deal to them. And then you have the other side that talk about spiritual gifts, and they're in the 14. And ironically, usually the two do not mix. Isn't that odd? Yet they're in the same book, only three chapters apart. So the point being, I want you to see the global in this, which is the message of love. Paul is bringing correction to a church, and he's saying, guys, there is something bigger that we're trying to reveal here. Joel 2 says, and you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now the reason I'm reading this one is because this one's going to be referenced in Acts, saying that this is actually what's happening at Pentecost. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Your daughters shall prophesy. So in other words, what we see, where's that supposed to happen? Okay, is that like in some corner over here? None of us ever hear it, uh, but I'm sure it's happening. Yeah, the spirit of God is moving in that woman. We'll never know what she had to say because she has no voice in the church. Does that make sense? It's contradictory to conclude that. And all throughout Christian history, it has been understood that women have a voice in the church, but not in the authoritative dimensions. And so that's, it's still, I'm not going to say that's not attention. However, there's a distinction between those. Now, Matthew 28, 1, and then 5 through 7. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And the angel answered and said to the woman, now I just skipped a whole chunk, okay? They're going to come and they're going to see the angel. It says, the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen. As he said, as he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay. Listen to the command that these women get. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now, why is Eric bringing this up? Remember, my, my context is, are women never supposed to speak? What you have right in front of you is one of the most profound illustrations in the entire Bible of the fact that women are supposed to speak. I don't know if you see it, but it is a direct introversion of the Garden of Eden. The woman is approached by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. She, is, she gets a false message, and then she goes and tells her husband. She speaks to her husband. Everything goes wrong. What you see is an inversion of this in this scene where now the women are being set free. Something is being corrected. Both of them are called Mary, which means rebellious. And so you see that the woman, the bride is actually given the fruit of God, given the message of the gospel, and says, go, share it with the man. The first communicators of the gospel in the New Testament are women. The first communicators of the risen Christ are women. Okay, that should not be overlooked in our understanding of all that Paul is writing. We need to recognize that women maintain a dignity in the history of the church. The fact that we have a propensity to press them into some lower caste is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Look what the Spirit of God is doing right here. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. It's the same phrase for what Jesus is going to say to the apostles and say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go. Same thing. They are called to go. Go quickly. And go tell the leaders of the church the truth. Okay, wow, uh, that's quite a commission, guys. What is the position of the woman? 
Uh-oh, how's Eric going to answer this one? Why did I stick that slide up on the screen? Why do I have to answer that? I'm going to answer it in Galatians 3. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have, as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now I'm going to ask, this is just the women in this room, I'm going to ask you a question. What's your position? There's your answer. You see, when we say, what is the position of the woman, we all, we all default to the fact that it's going to be some inferior, submitted position, when in actuality, the answer is that you are in Christ. Now, being in Christ has a domino effect throughout your life, but it's the same domino effect in mine. In other words, if you ask me, what is my position in Christ? Boy, it sure does sound like your position is the same as the women, Eric. It is. It is in Christ. I am in a submitted position, silenced before his word. I do not have authority in the kingdom of heaven if, in, the, in the sense that I do not speak into those things. That is where the triune God meets and he will decide the providence. He will decide the sovereign movements of the kingdoms of this earth. That is not mine to speak into. It is mine to heed and to listen to and respond to, but I stand silent before his counsel. And when he asks me to speak what he has determined to be true, I will speak. But what he has asked me to speak, I will not come up with my own conjectures. I want to speak what he desires. So what is the position of the woman? She is in Christ. That is actually the clear concise answer to what has become of the woman. She has been shown such great value by God Almighty. For God so loved this woman that he gave his only begotten son that if this woman would believe in him, she would not perish but have everlasting life. And she would be positioned in Christ, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his seated position at the right hand of majesty. In Christ, she is free from the bondage of legal oppressions and the long-held guilt stranglehold that rests upon her. She has been redeemed from the curse and she is no more a slave to cultural patterns of times past. Should she throw off her femininity? This is a common thing. This was happening in Corinth where you see a woman who's like set free and now she's in Christ because Paul is validating that to the church of Corinth. He says, I know you're free, but when you use your freedom now for selfish uh, you know, enunciation and it's like, hey, look at me, I'm all that. You're missing the whole point. You've been set free so that you could submit. Judge among yourselves, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? You see, a woman still should have that covering. A woman should still have that head above her. She should not just say, hey, I'm free from a head. No, a woman still is still a proper order and a proper revelation. She is yet still a woman. In other words, though she is in Christ, I know this is sort of obvious, but I'm going to say it anyways, she's still a woman. Though I am in Christ, I'm still a man. Therefore, I have a responsibility in my biology to house the Holy Spirit in a way that a man would. Just like a woman in here needs to house the Holy Spirit in a way that a woman would. Though that there is no distinction between us in Christ, we have a common union or a communion in Christ, in the natural realm, I still must function as a man. A woman must still function as a woman. And so we leverage the same truths that we are seeing in the heavenly realms and we allow them to be lived out of us here. She is still yet a woman and therefore a vivid picture of the redemptive picture of the feminine position. Sorry, I used picture in there twice. Ephesians 5.24 Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Whew. So here's the question I want to ask. Is the church subject unto Christ? Because we could read that previous scripture. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, and let the, then, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Well, so that's assuming that the church is subject unto Christ. What sort of model are we setting? Because it's the same model that we're patterning. We're patterning a spiritual model of the church submitted unto Christ. And then we're modeling that in our church gathering. We're modeling it in our homes. 
so that the manifold wisdom of God is being revealed in and through us as the church. So is the church subject unto Christ? Are we behaving as the bride or are we on our feministic rant? I want to do it my way. I want the church to be as I want it to be. Or are we willing to say, God, your way? All of us should be silenced before the word. Say, what does God ask? What does God desire? Because that's really all that matters. Silent that the groom may speak. So that's sort of how we started. Believe thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me. He does the works. So Jesus modeled this, and then he gave this same model to us. So that we could say, the works that I do, the words that I speak are not my own. They belong to him. They belong to the groom. So this is how the church functions. We are the bride, yet we are still called to communicate. We are the bride, but we are not the ones in the legal authoritative position of the kingdom of heaven. We are responsive to his kingship. As priests, we keep the home. And we demonstrate this in varying ways. Young women, older women. Young men, older men. We have responsibility to showcase the glory of the kingdom of heaven in a unique role. And how we do that is all the same. We do it in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Father, I ask that this revelation would continue to seep deeply into our soil of our soul and that we would get it, that we would grip it. Lord Jesus, that we would understand the profound nature of femininity, the profound nature of masculinity, and that we would cherish it instead of spurn it. Lord, in this age and generation when gender roles have been so dashed to pieces, so questioned and, and knived, Lord, I ask that you would rebuild in our understanding the grandeur of it, that we would not take it lightly, but that we would labor and fight to keep its integrity. Lord, we love you and trust you. It's in the precious name we pray, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellersley campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.